Blog Talk Radio. Is racism hurting you? On issues of race, are you unable to speak, think, and act with clarity and confidence? Are you tired of laughing when nothing is funny, smiling when you are not happy, agreeing when you really disagree? CounterRacism.com, you can learn specific strategies and techniques to counter the behaviors of the people who practice racism in all areas of activity. Using words correctly, following counter-racist logic, even counter-racist science projects designed to reveal what racism is, how it works, and how to counter it. The open source code writing format allows you to pick and choose from a variety of counter-racist suggestions so you can produce the code that works for you. Stop by counterracism.com today and help replace racism with justice. That's counter-racism.com. Good afternoon, everybody. I want to thank everyone for tuning in for another edition of The Cow's Context of White Supremacy. This is Gus T. Renegade. Uh, Thank you again for everyone for supporting the broadcast by uh, tuning in live or if you are listening to uh, the archives. I want to thank you. I hope uh, we are providing constructive information uh, for all victims of white supremacy, uh, giving constructive information and strategies, uh, things you can do to counter uh, racism uh, in all areas of people activity. Um, Again, I want to uh, encourage everyone, if you think the information in these shows is constructive, share it with other non-whites, other people who are interested in establishing a system of justice. Uh, also, very helpful if you can uh, favorite the show. That does great things, making it easier for me to promote, get more people into the show. Always helpful. Again, thank you for tuning in and listening. I appreciate the support. Um, today's show, I am uh, super happy. One of the great things I've been able to do uh, with the show is to uh, pick out authors and books that I have really enjoyed that have uh, expanded my thinking uh, and really helped me uh, evolve in terms of uh, understanding uh, racism, white supremacy, and uh, different ways of thinking to help combat that system. Uh, and today's guest, uh, his book has been uh, very helpful in that process. I read this book uh, a couple years ago. I actually had to go back and reread it to uh, get myself fresh and able to uh, intelligently uh, speak to the guest today. Um, the book is God, a White Racist. Uh, the author is Dr. William R. Jones. Uh, he is an alumnus of Howard in Washington, D.C., also an alumnus of Harvard in Massachusetts. Uh, he is currently a professor at Florida State University, uh, Dr. William R. Jones. Are you there? Yes, I am. Pleasure to talk with you and your audience. Uh, we are super thankful to uh, have you here. I'm very grateful uh, for you taking time out to uh, speak with us. Uh, I don't know how it's down there in Tallahassee, but it is beautiful uh, out here in Seattle. It is sunny. I have seen a plethora of people out uh, sunbathing and just having a blast. Uh, I don't know how it is down there in Florida, but it is a very pretty day here, so I'm it's, very thankful. 
We're about to get some rain, but we've had uh, some good days this week. Okay. Group, could you uh, please share with our audience uh, any information uh, you'd like them to know, uh, your background, what you're currently working on, uh, your website, just anything you think would be fruitful? Um, I've been working on this issue of uh, oppression uh, since a teenager, and maybe a little uh, autobiographical context would uh, help you to understand what I did, why I did it, and how I'm trying to continue that enterprise. Uh, I was born and read, raised and bred in a very fundamentalist Baptist church in Louisville, Kentucky, where my grandfather was the minister. At the uh, at at during teenage, uh, I was a disciple of Billy Graham. I wanted to be like him, and no, that's where I was at that time. Uh, and I uh, began to look at the beliefs, the values that my grandfather was instilling into uh, 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 me and my brothers and sisters. And I began to see something rather rather odd or funny. Uh, I began to see that those beliefs were part and part parcel, part of the scaffolding, part of the very foundation of the suffering that I was experiencing. For instance, he used to preach, the harder the cross, the brighter the crown. The more you suffer here, the better it's going to be for you after death. Now, reflect on that for a moment. Note what that is saying. It is saying that the more you suffer, the more you bear the um, strains of oppression, the better off you're going to be. It is saying that in order for me to reach my highest good, to reach my achieve my salvation, I need to get this suffering. He would tell us that it's the people at the top who are in fundamental trouble because uh, he said, I'm preparing you not simply for this life but for all eternity. The people at the top may have it okay right now, but what they're, they, they aren't going to be on the good side of things you know, after they, after they die. Now, Look at this from one other angle. If I'm at the bottom of the social ladder with the most of the worst and the least of the best, and that to me is another way of talking about oppression, and I operate on the conclusion that the more I suffer, oppression means that I am getting an extra dose There's a certain of suffering. There's a certain amount of suffering that comes to everybody by virtue of our not being superhuman. Everybody t- tends to get sick. Uh, we don't all, we, we never are able to uh, satisfy all of our needs or wants and so forth. So there's a part of suffering that goes along with the human condition, the human situation. But that's not what I'm talking about in oppression. I'm talking about that kind of suffering plus 
an extra dose, a super dose of suffering that is the result of your situation in the social, economic, historical context. Uh, so if I believe that the more I suffer, the better it's going to be for me, I will not be motivated to try to eradicate my suffering. I will not eradicate it. I will embrace it. I will try to get more of it. I'm building up brownie points the more I get. Now, at that point in my life, I reached the conclusion, it was an erroneous conclusion, I, tell, I say this all the time, that in order to get rid of oppression, you had to eradicate religion. Uh, that, to me, was an erroneous conclusion because it was based on an imprecise, imprecise and inadequate understanding of oppression and religion. I learned from Carter G. Woodson, for instance, a principle that we call the binary logic. And the binary logic killed. It does. It's, it's may sound highfalutin, but it's a very simple, uh, down-to-earth principle. I don't care who you are, when you are, where you are, or how you are. You've got two, and only two choices, to respond to your situation. You're going to choose either to do what we call conserve or preserve, we use the acronym COP. You're either going to conserve or preserve that situation or some aspect of it, or are you going to do what we call correct. COR is the acronym we use for that. So though I'm arguing those are your only two choices. You're going to cop a car. Now, I ask people, and this is uh, how we operate our total systems, uh, a system. I throw out a principle and hypothesis, and it's a universal hypothesis. I'm saying those are your only two choices. And so if you want to show I'm wrong and make me take this principle off the table for discussion, all you've got to do is give me one little example that is an exception. That's all, just one. That's all it takes to rebut a universal. However, if you cannot supply that one single exception, you're going to have to accept at least for this time at this and this juncture in, in, in human history the legitimacy of that principle for the discussion until you can come up with something that's, uh, uh, that rebuts it. Now, uh, the only exception that I have gotten is the following. People say, well, suppose I do nothing. Okay. If you look at that, it turns out to be simply another way of talking about a cop. If I do nothing, what am I doing but conserving and preserving, copying the present situation? Now, there's another principle that goes along with this, because 
notice what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to show that there is a way of analyzing our situation, oppression, that enables you to come up with concrete, can't-lose strategies for dealing with it. Every correction is a change, but every change is not a correction. The example we use is the following. I'm driving my car. I have a flat tire. Driver's side front. So I pull over to the side, uh, stop, and take the flat side driver's side and exchange it with the uh, uh, good tire passenger side. Now, you intuit that that's a change, but you also intuit that that's not what? That is not a correction. And it didn't take you any amount of... of uh, brain surgeon knowledge to understand these kinds of uh, kinds of principles. You don't have to be a brain surgeon to recognize that if you start off regarding your suffering as good and necessary for your salvation, you will never be motivated or prompted to try to eradicate it or get rid of it. That's a conclusion that you can learn for yourself. It doesn't take our students more than and two seconds to learn that. Would you say that that is a major motivating force behind why you wrote uh, "Is God a White Racist"? Um, yeah, the ma- the major motivating <laughs> force for uh, that and what I do uh, is my self-interest, and I think that's the primary factor that underlies everything that all of us do. I don't, I don't care what it is that you do or what it is that you make. Uh, that's my understanding of culture. Culture is any and everything that we do and any and everything that we make. And the purpose is one of two things. We're either trying to enhance our survival or we're trying to enhance our well-being. So there's a element of self-interest in each and every thing that we do. And we will never understand how to deal with oppression until we understand uh, that simple uh, uh, principle. People oppress as a survival and life-enhancing mechanism. That's why it's so difficult for you to get people to stop oppressing. They have looked at reality and are interpreting things such that they have concluded that in order for me to survive, I have to maintain this superhuman surplus of power over some feature or some other other creature. We use the... Uh, this uh, principle to talk about uh, um, about oppression. Uh, I am arguing that oppression, oppression, is the primary human behavior, the primary, the foundational human behavior. And I never lose this argument. Uh, 
So if you want to understand and cope with oppression, you've got to uh, understand this principle. So the reason why I do always spend all this time on, on, on this subject is if I don't get you to have an accurate picture of oppression and how to work with it, my survival and well-being is in danger. So my self-interest requires that I make sure you get it right. Now, I'm going to give you a principle, and I want you to give me an exception to it, and you cannot do it at the organic level of life. In order to survive, you have to feed on something other than yourself. Now, give me an exception. And you cannot do it. Okay, now what does this tell us about reality? Please note, number one, we did not create that situation. That is not a, a character or feature of reality uh, that you and I are responsible for. I don't know if it's always been here or if you have a concept of God is created, then you've got to attribute th those set of conditions to God. Now, it tells me that when we are in this context where in order to survive you've got to feed on something other than yourself, you've got two and only two choices. You've got the choice of suicide or not suicide. If I don't eat anything at all, that's what? That's suicide. If I choose to feed on myself, a finger today, elbow tomorrow, because the principle says you've got to feed on something other than yourself. If I feed on myself, the consequence is the same. Eventually, it's going to be suicide. So that enables us to demonstrate. I'm calling this a demonstration because it enables us to, to demonstrate which of these two options everybody alive, everybody alive has chosen. Everybody alive has chosen what? not suicide, which is another way of saying that they have chosen as their highest good their survival and their well-being, please note, at the expense of something else. What this principle is saying that there's no way that you and I can survive without uh, taking something from something else. Uh, now, I raise the question in theology, um, the fundamental theological question that I raise now is, does God eat? Is God able to maintain his or her status without feeding on something else. And if that's the case, then please explain to me why this benefit was not given to uh, creatures. I'm trying to say that whoever structured reality is such that in order for me to survive, I have to do it at the expense of something else, uh, 
of something else, to me, that's where the responsibility for this foundation of oppression lies uh, and not within uh, uh, our responses to it. That's a funny kind of, uh, of uh, benevolent uh, figure, particularly if they have control over all that is, as, 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 as many people believe, um, where we are given this Hobbesian choice that in order to, to survive, we have to uh, uh, do it at the expense of something else. I um, think that's a very, uh, very interesting point uh, that you just raised. I did want to uh, ask, uh, get some questions here. Um, based on what you said uh, at the beginning there, you said you wrote this book and the work that you do in terms of educating about uh, oppression uh, it is in your self-interest. If you are a victim of oppression, uh, it is in your self-interest to combat oppression. Would that be correct? Oh, yes. I, I'm saying uh, oh, this, is not, this is not simply what I'm saying. Everybody alive has concluded that it is in their best interest not to commit suicide because they didn't do it. And uh, based on that, they are saying that my survival and well-being uh, requires that I follow this uh, natural law, this natural order of the eater and the eating. In order to survive, I've got to remain or retain my status as the eater. Okay. Um, so if it is in your self-interest as a victim of oppression, to combat oppression, if you are a victim of oppression and you are not combating it, you are not functioning in your best interest. Would that be correct? That's so, and uh, okay. which means that you have to understand how oppression operates in order to combat it. Oppression is a very predictable human activity and response. We can literally show you, predict for you, how the oppressor is going to operate in the situation. They don't have uh, infinite options. The nature of the of reality uh, and the purpose, the purpose of what they are attempting to do, namely, to enhance their survival and well-being at the expense of something else. Look, Fred, ain't no chicken ever going to let you munch on its drumstick until you do what to it first. you okay. got to kill it or murder it. Mm -hmm. Because they are trying to do what? Enhance their survival and well-being. And if we didn't have superior power to the chicken, we wouldn't, the, the chicken wouldn't, there, there would be few Kentucky Fried Chicken stores. Okay. Um, you are a black male, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, do you believe that there is a system of racism, white supremacy, and the definition of uh, white supremacy that I use is global system 
designed to subjugate and or abuse everyone in the known universe who is classified as not white. Uh, do you believe such a system exists? Uh, in those terms, I don't. know. See, see, what I'm trying to identify is uh, I, I um, have no problem affirming this global oppression. <laughs> the oppression is there. But not all oppression is reducible to racial oppression. Not, for instance, uh, sexism, classism, colonialism, these are not reducible to the racial factor. What, they are what you have in oppression is the following. The oppressor picks out some objective, absolute, what they regard as an absolute feature of reality. And they use that to separate the uh, human family into two groups. Oppression always involves a two-category system arranged in a hierarchy of superior and inferior. We do it, um, the chicken versus the human being. We, we uh, label and define the chicken as, uh, uh, as inferior to us, and that's part of the justification that we use to eat the chicken. Take, take a cockroach, for instance. For instance. They tell us that the cockroach was here before we, human beings ever came on the scene, and it's likely that they'll, come, they'll be here after we are gone. Now, what have we tried to do to the cockroach uh, during that interval while we share planet Earth with the cockroach? We've tried to practice genocide on it. Have we been successful? No. Now, my point is, we label the cockroach as subhuman, having no value, and based on that appraisal of it, we try to eradicate it. But, like crabgrass and so forth, it certainly doesn't appear as if nature is evaluating and putting the same value on the cockroach and crabgrass that we put on it. So I'm trying to show that our evaluation is not one that is necessarily supported by reality it's, uh, it, it, itself. Uh, and that's where the um, oppression ultimately breaks down, because the oppressor is going to have to eventually cheat in what he or she is doing. We never, we never lose, lose that. We never lose that argument. When you say cheat, what do you what do you mean when you say well, cheat? Well, okay, I'll, uh, let me give you some uh, uh, some 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 examples. Um, if if take for instance, and and I'm trying to uh, make these take make these examples uh, from the area of religion and the kind of religion that I was taught as a child that created uh, the kinds of problems uh, I think that, that black people have in, uh, um, in, in dealing with, uh, with oppression. Um, 
we did an analysis and uh, uh, so forth of the liturgical calendar, the celebrations, the religious celebrations of uh, black Christianity, white Christianity, and compared it, for instance, with, uh, with Judaism. And this is what we found. Um, in Judaism, there is an ongoing, ongoing reference and accent on the religious celebration of events of economic, social, and political liberation. You've got Passover coming up uh, when uh, um, uh, the Jew, the Israelites uh, escaped um, the oppression and so forth of, of, uh, of the Egyptians. You've got uh, Hanukkah at Christmas when cultural genocide was, practiced, was being practiced on uh, on the Jewish or uh, Israeli is, Israelite community, a Semite community, and uh, we've got the Sabbath. Take the Sabbath. Uh, notice what it said. You were once slaves in Egypt. You wanted a day of rest. Uh, you deserve a day of rest, and you got a day of rest. Now, having received that day of rest, you you should extend that kind of privilege and so forth to to uh, your manservant, your maidservant, and even your animals. So that celebration of Sabbath is a, when you look at it, it's talking about extending that, that form of equality and so forth uh, almost to the whole creation. But there are some others. Okay. If you if you look at the black Christian liturgical calendar, tell me how many events you have that focus on celebrating events of economic, social, and political liberation. And you come up with not a cotton-picking one. Now, you explain to me the kinds of choices that were involved that brought about or that brings about that kind of discrepancy uh, uh, and, uh, and, and, and so forth. Benjamin Mays talks about this con concept of compensatory beliefs. And you have to understand the importance of our beliefs and our values in terms of our behavior and our actions. Carter G. Woodson said, if you want to control a person's behavior and their actions, you do it by controlling their education, their beliefs, and their values. If you talk about culture, as most people do, in, from two standpoints, one is material culture, and just look around you, you'll see a lot of uh, uh, material things that human beings have made, uh, chairs, tables, cars, all of that. Those are the material features of culture. But there is also a immaterial feature of culture 
the beliefs and the values, the ideas and so forth that we have made and created that you cannot uh, quantify or, or, or uh, objectify in that sense. Now, what Woodson is arguing, and please understand the importance of this for dealing with oppression. What he is arguing is that it is this immaterial, the immaterial product of culture, our immaterial beliefs and values, which is the primary cause for how we respond to the material, uh, how we respond to the material features of our environment and and, uh, and 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 our life, and that's what Benjamin Mays was attempting to say. I'm trying to show you that in our past there were these individuals: Du Bois, Woodson. Harriet Tubman, who emphasized again and again that until we have the right set of beliefs and values that that control us, we will never be free. Du Bois mentioned for he he has this what what I call I have a dream speech. We are very familiar with Keynes. I have a, a dream speech. We say it. I read it all the time. But uh, um, Du Bois had one, too. And uh, uh, what he argued was that, um, one one moment, Uh, he, he said that if I can get just one generation of black youth and if I can teach them about oppression, how it operates, uh, what it's vulnerable to, and so forth, which is another way of saying if I can explain to black kids about their actual situation, which is oppression, and if I explain it in a way that helps them to understand accurately how oppression operates, and this is his punchline. He says, then our dreams will come true, but not otherwise. He is arguing that the primary variable that determines whether or not black people are going to be free is whether they have an accurate and accurate understanding of oppression. What we, we translate this into a precise methodology. We call it the virus vaccine method of social analysis. If uh, a deadly virus or a germ enters our life space, how do, we do, how do we respond? We try to kill it. We try to murder it. We try to practice genocide on it. We develop things like vaccines and uh, antitoxins and so forth that are designed to get that thing out of our life space, which is threatening us. Uh, That's what we did in the uh, civil rights movement. That's what we continue to do. We try to develop a sort of 
uh, antitoxin to solve the problem. And I'm not against that. But what we fail to recognize is that oppression undergoes mutation. Why does the virus undergo mutation? Why has the AIDS virus, like all the other ones, mutate? And it's quite obvious what they're trying to do is to survive. Mutation is a survival mechanism. It is also a form of disguise. If if the AIDS virus can disguise itself so that we can notice it, we don't have a basis for uh, identifying it and developing a vaccine that would would uh, would handle it. But please note, this method requires the following sequence: you must you must not start working on developing the vaccine. That is not your first step. That leads to failure. Your first step is to focus on mapping, describing accurately the virus, learning under what conditions it thrives, what is it vulnerable to, and so forth. And we have put it ass backwards. We focus more on the vaccine without showing how this relates to the life cycle and the operation of of the virus. Until we get that right, we're we're going to continue to flounder in our liberation efforts. Again, back to Mays. He is saying that there are certain beliefs, certain beliefs, that black people are oppressed people are taught are taught in order to keep them oppressed. Uh, I don't know how many of you remember Howard Thurman, eminent uh, minister. Every time Life Magazine did a, a study, uh, a survey on the best preachers in the United States, Howard was always on that uh, list. He was the first. A uh, black chaplain at, uh, at at Boston University and so forth. He's a classmate of uh, of King and uh, and the like. And he tells this story about his grandmother, who had who was a slave and who had never learned to read and write. And so she asked him to read the Bible to her, which he did. And over the years, he noticed that there were some very familiar parts of the Bible that she never asked to be read. He thought she didn't know they were there, and so he asked about it one day, and uh, and she said, oh, oh, yeah, no, I know they're there. Uh, she said, but when I was a slave, the slave master would bring in ministers white and black, and invariably they would preach to us from Paul. She had the text absolutely right. Servants, be obedient to your master. And she said, I swore then that if I ever learned to read or write, I wasn't ever going to set my eyes on Paul. And she wouldn't let anybody else set their eyes on Paul and let it fall on her ears. Now, notice what she did. And I want you to understand 
what you might regard as the heretical implication, the blasphemous implication of this. And that's what I was told when I tried to uh, follow this practice uh, as a youth. What she did was to develop a canon within the canon. She made a distinction between the Bible on the basis of the verses, the passages that supported liberation and the ones that supported oppression. And what she did was say, well, let's kick out all the stuff that involves oppression and just uh, read and uh, conform to the stuff that relates to uh, to liberation. Now... Oh, wait a minute. I had a, a quick question I wanted yeah. to, uh, to interject here. Um, very important because this show is the context of white supremacy, and I believe uh, it is correct. You are the first guest I have had on the show who does not believe... There is a system of white supremacy, very important. And I knew this before uh, I invited Mr. Uh, excuse me, Dr. Uh, Jones to come on the show, uh, but I felt his book uh, has very constructive information, uh, particularly for victims of racism. And Dr. Jones uses that term uh, in his book, uh, exactly, Victims of Racism, uh, page 146, if you get the first edition of the book uh, that was uh published in 1973. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, and I I really wanted to spend a good chunk of time on your book because I feel like we really haven't talked about that, and I think a lot of people, um, at least I think, it would be very, uh, it would be fabulous if we could spend some time really going over specific things that you have in your book, Is God a White Racist? But I wanted to ask really quickly, um, have you been mistreated because you are not white? Please understand what I what I mean when I uh, answer that question. I am not saying that I have not been oppressed. That's not what I'm arguing. What I am arguing is that the foundation, the causation of my oppression, is not what I call white uh, racial racial supremacy case in point wait a minute i wanted to i wanted to be clear because i didn't i didn't get an answer to my question um i just wanted to know if you have been mistreated because you are classified as a black male have you been mistreated because you are not white i have been mistreated and oppressed because there are people in the uh, society and environment practicing oppression. But it, uh, this is what I'm trying to say. If you look at the, uh, the global society, do you not find uh, people who are discriminated against, uh, oppressed on the basis, for instance, of gender? of religion, of their birth, their uh, uh, nationality, uh, their sexual orientation, and so forth. So I'm not denying the fact, the fact 
of the oppression. What I'm trying to say is I find it difficult to link uh, uh, discrimination against gays, discrimination against women and female as the as caused by uh, racial racial discrimination. Uh, it's a different kind of oppression. It is oppression based on sex. It is oppression based on class, so forth. It's not saying right. there's no oppression. It is simply saying that the racial factor is not the primary trigger. Right. I, I wanted to trigger. clarify. This is very important because I have seen uh, individuals who have been mistreated because they were wearing glasses. I have seen that in my life. Uh, and I'm not saying that someone who is mistreated because they are wearing glasses, that that is because of the system of racism, white supremacy. I'm just saying that I acknowledge you have people mistreated for tons of reasons. You have victims of all kinds of things. You have victims of arson. You have victory, uh, victims of break-ins. You have victims of mugging. And as you wrote in your book, you have, in my view and in your view apparently because it's in your book, victims of racism. I just I still didn't get an answer uh, to my question. Have you been mistreated because you are not white? Uh, the, I, I'm trying to point out that there's a fundamental misunderstanding of the mechanism of oppression with regard to race. Uh, if you look... There, there is a form of, of racial oppression that's based on the principle that white, white skin color, pigmentation and so forth, is superior to black pigmentation and so forth. No question about it. If you look, for instance, at Thomas Jefferson, he sets up this distinction between whites and blacks based on the fact that white is a superior color. Black, he says, is monotonous and all that other. He actually identifies that uh, Native Americans, because they have uh, are more in between that, uh, are superior to blacks based on, based on, on the color. But if you look at other forms of uh, of what what we would call racial uh, uh, discrimination, look in the nineteenth uh, uh, century racist. What they were arguing, Strangfellow and so forth, was that white people had superior intellects. They based it on such factors as not the skin color. The skin color was simply the most one of the visible indicators of the presence or absence of this superior intelligence. They also attempted to show that the size of your skull was a physical indicator of uh, of uh, uh, the fact that black people didn't have the same intellectual ability. Now I'm trying to say. That 
that is a form of racial oppression uh, that more um, clearly identifies the kind of oppression that I have experienced, and it is not based on color. It's based on uh, uh, the ability to create civilization or intellectual ability. I'm simply trying to say those are two distinct kinds of racism, and I think we make a serious error in eradicating it if we attempt, if we attempt to take the pigmentation factor and reduce racial uh, 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 oppression to that and that alone. That's what I'm arguing against. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm going to uh, move forward, but I, I do want to note I don't feel my question was answered, but uh, I wanted to ask because I asked you on the phone last week and I found this very fascinating. I asked you if Christianity has been used by racists to condition victims of racism to be deficient at solving problems. Uh, what was your answer to that question? Right. Uh, again, note what I am saying and how I approach the issue. I am arguing that there are specific, specific beliefs and values which um, motivate us to respond in a given way. And some of these beliefs and values are found in Christianity, and I spell them out in the book. I've done it this afternoon, and I'll give you some, even some more. But they, these same, this same set of beliefs and values you also find in other religions. So all I'm trying to do is if you want to deal with racism, racial oppression accurately, you have to identify the very precise, particular belief that is the cause of the problem and go against that. And I'm saying that it is difficult, it is difficult to reduce all of these uh, specific beliefs to the pigmentation factor. Now, I'll go back to uh, um, uh, Benjamin Mays. If, if you, you know, if you look in the book that I did, I have a, a whole list of uh, uh, things. For instance, he says, blacks on the whole have adopted beliefs that enable them to endure hardship, that enable them to suffer pain and withstand, and withstand maladjustment, but do not motivate them to eliminate the source of these evils. It's not difficult to find uh, items uh, uh, like that in, uh, in, in, in religion. One of them is, for instance, the view that we suffer because we are God's chosen people. And what God is doing in uh, our suffering is helping us to, uh, is helping to refine us for a greater uh, level 
of of humanity and uh, uh, and Christianity. Uh, there, I'll give you another uh, belief that I spoke about uh, so much in the book. I mean, uh, the, I'll put it this way: uh, how you respond to suffering, how you respond to suffering, will dictate will dictate whether you're going to conserve or preserve the situation, or whether you are going to uh, uh, try to uh, uh, try to eradicate it. Uh, if you believe, for instance, that suffering is God's punishment, God's punishment, there's no way that you can uh, oppose it. Uh, there's a long chapter in the book where I argue, you know, raise a question, is it legitimate for a Christian to call a doctor when they get sick? And that sounds like a very funny question, but you know I'm not going to take the time. But you you read that and you will see what I'm getting at. But if if it if it is divine punishment, if it is divine punishment, then you've got to accept it. Otherwise, what you're doing is putting yourself above God and saying, "I'm only going to uh, accept what I want." If you have the belief, I'll give you another one, uh, that my, my uh, grandfather used to say, God is never going to put any kind of pain or suffering on our shoulders that we cannot bear. Uh, you can, it's so many, you know, I, <laughs> the only thing I'm trying to say is focus on the particular belief and try to understand why that particular belief brings about the resp- the specific response of accept- of accepting it and conforming to your situation rather than trying to uh, uh, to eradicate it and and not and not attempt to see behind all of these particular specific beliefs some kind of pigmentation theory it just won't work uh in your book uh in the first edition i want to make that clarification because your book uh it has been uh, updated and uh, i think the page numbers uh change a little bit uh if you are looking at the latest version uh, of is god a white racist uh on the first edition of your book page 24 you said that many blacks have found it more comforting theologically and psychologically to see themselves as the object of God's boundless love. Um, do you think that that uh, works to preserve or conserve uh, a system of racism or a system of oppression? Uh, quite obviously. If, uh, if we believe that God is a God of love, and God is the Lord of the universe, and that God is expressing his love for us in whatever is allowed to happen to us, then we have to regard that those uh, situations and activities as for our good and therefore uh, an expression of God's love. I 
please note, I also pointed out in the book over and over again that there's a whole different, whole different tradition in black religious thought which challenges God, which challenges God about the way in which uh, black people are suffering and continue to suffer from generation to generation. I'll give you another one. The, the pie in the sky stuff. If you, uh, many of the uh, uh, 19th century uh, 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 black theologians and, and, uh, and uh, ministers argued, you know, that um, uh, uh, all we got to do is wait. God is a God of love, and eventually, and eventually we are going to be free because that is in accord with God's love. I, I, don't, have, I, don't, have, I, I don't believe that, as, as you know from the book. So I, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that our method focuses on the uh, ability to show how a particular uh, belief and value, a particular activity, is going to respond to the concrete objective situation of oppression. And that when you learn that te technique, you can tell in advance which which uh, activities and so and beliefs you want to get rid of. That's Woodson's whole idea that what we've got to do is identify those beliefs and values that uh, uh, motivate us to conform to this oppression, to regard that oppression as good. We've got to come up with a different set of ideas that regard it as, uh, uh, as, uh, as bad for us, bad for us, and uh, motivate us to eradicate it. I, let, let me give you an example from uh, English literature that, that helps to explain what I'm talking about and why I uh, am insistent on not allowing a pigmentation theory uh, to uh, be the controlling mechanism for looking at the causation between beliefs and values and, and concrete activities. When Jane Eyre first came out, this is what one uh, white reviewer said about it. He said it is preeminently, and this you can use for your argument against Christianity, that Jane Eyre was preeminently an anti-Christian book. And then he goes on to explain why. He says because throughout the book, the poor people at the bottom, the poor are murmuring, protesting against the power and the privilege of the rich, which everybody knows, and this is his punchline, is ultimately a murmuring, a protest against God and God's appointment. Notice what that says. Before Jane Eyre, people believe that whatever their situation was in life, whether they were at the bottom or the top, was the result of God's will and purpose. God's will and purpose. And therefore, you had to accept it. You had to accept it. Now, after Jane Eyre, 
what you have is that people no longer accepted that belief. And note what that says. The oppressor could no longer keep people at the bottom by using that kind of faulty belief oppressive system. That's all I'm trying to get at, that you can literally predict in advance whether a specific belief is going to tilt one way or the other, whether it's going to cop a car. Okay. Uh, on uh, page 68 of your book, uh, you said, the oppressor justifies his own exalted status and the appalling misery of the oppressed through an appeal to some extra-human ground. Appeal, for example, is made to God's will, to the biological attributes of the oppressor relative to the oppressed, to some natural law as the basis for the difference in status or accomplishment, etc. It makes, as we have seen, God the ultimate racist, the appeal to extra-human sanctions also effectively releases the oppressor from any sense of responsibility and guilt for the oppressed's suffering. Both his state and that of the oppressed are natural, the given, that which is supported by ultimate reality. Obviously, rebellion here is almost unthinkable for it would involve challenging ultimate reality uh could you i guess uh go into a little more detail about sure, uh, sure. what you were saying there uh this is calling attention to one of our uh, other uh sort of universal principle and it's it's called the principle of legitimation legitimation validation i don't care what you do when, where, how you do it, we all attempt to give sound, logical, moral uh, reasons for our actions. That's how we try to say this is what uh, we ought to do and why you ought to do it and accept this as the, uh, as the correct thing. And what we have found is and it's it, it 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 it's not hard to under uh, not hard to understand why that our primary inclination in legitimating our uh, morality and our deeds and so forth is not to do it on the basis of our human authority, our human power, but what we do is to go to extra suprahuman reality nature or God in order to do the justification. Now, why do we do that? Uh, one reason uh, is quite easy to show. For instance, understand the principle, our arms too short to box with God. If we believe, if we believe that God has all of this power and might and so forth, it would be ridiculous foolhardy, suicidal for us not to conform to uh, the will, purpose, and objective of this all-powerful uh, figure. Another reason is uh, 
within the human sphere, we want other people to follow our rule for uh, uh, morality and so forth. And the recipe that we used to do that, I, I, I got from a, a guy named uh, Peter Berger. He says, if I, what's the recipe? What's the recipe if I want to, if I want to set up an uh, institution and I want it to give it the longest life possible. I want it to be more than simply one human generation. I want it to be, you know, as, as live as long as possible. What's the recipe? And this is what he said. He said, don't tell anybody that you made that institution. Now, notice what that says. If I tell people that I created the institution, they're going to say, okay, so if you create an institution, I have as much power and authority to do the same. But if we say that God did it, that nature did it, if we set up that causality, then we are motivated to, uh, uh, um, uh, to go along with it. That's why if you, if you go back and look at slavery, uh, slavery, they attempted to defend slavery by uh, what we call a religious legitimation, uh, using parts of the Bible and so forth, the sa that sa so-called sacred text, uh, to justify it. In the 19th century, they didn't do it on the basis of uh, religion because science had moved a, sort of ahead of religion at that point. So what they did was to appeal to uh, the natural law. Uh, that's why Strangfellow, for instance, uh, not Strangfellow, I forget the guy's name, but he argued again that if you do a comparison of the, uh, brain, the brain sizes and the uh, head sizes of, of blacks and whites, you'll see that uh, uh, black people are biologically constructed to be inferior. And so even if they wanted, even if they wanted to, uh, 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 if you wanted to teach black people, uh, they would never be able to reach the level of white intelligence because of these biological structures that uh, uh, prevented that. But the purpose again, and this is uh, what we what we attempt to do is to show that this is one of those places where people cheat, because for every argument that you use using the Bible to show um, one side of the argument, give me five minutes, and I I can go and do the opposite. So it ends up with what we call this picking and choosing. Picking and choosing re selection rejection principle, which is the foundational principle that we all use. We go through life, we go through nature and reality, religion and so forth, picking and choosing a point of view, a particular point of view that we feel best enhances our survival and our well-being. That's what everybody does. Um, I wanted if uh, if you could share your view 
uh, in terms of Christianity, because uh, unless I'm incorrect, that is uh, the focus of your text, Is God a White Racist? Um, if you are in a system of oppression, my view, a system of white supremacy, and you are practicing as a victim of racism, you are practicing so-called Christianity, and then you see the KKK and they at least allege that they, you know, also are practicing Christianity. Um, they tend to burn crosses and that sort of thing. Uh, and the white man that, uh, he's deceased now, but the white man known as Jerry Falwell um, alleges he is a Christian, uh, but he, according to reports that have come to my attention, uh, chained the doors to the house of the Lord to prevent non-white people from entering the church. Do you think that's something that a victim of oppression, victim of white supremacy, is that something you would need to take a serious and long look at if you're saying, as a victim, I'm practicing Christianity and the people who are mistreating you are also saying that they're practicing Christianity, even sometimes simultaneously while mistreating you? Here again, my approach is to go back uh, and identify the specific belief and then show that there are other beliefs and values in the text that would produce the opposite effect. So the issue of the question, the primary question comes for me is why is it that black people select, you know, as Howard Thurman's grandmother said, uh, the, clearly the slave master did a pick-and-choose arrangement in the Bible to pick out those passages that if black people accepted them would make them better slaves, which would extend the, uh, uh, the oppression. For instance, go look at the book of Leviticus. There's a section there called the Jubilee Year. The Jubilee year. And this is what it says. Every seven years times seven. And I'm not a Christian. I'm a humanist. But I'm just trying to show you uh, how I would approach going through that text uh, if I were a Christian in order to avoid the kind of dilemma that you that you're identifying. Uh, every seven years times seven plus one, that's 50 years, it says the following. Every 50 years... All slaves, all slaves are to be released. All debts are to be forgiven. You know, at the Jubilee, you don't, you don't have to pay any more on your Mercedes. Oh, a whole bunch of things. Like, notice what's happening here. They recognize that throughout human history, there would develop in the society uh, uh, inequalities. You would have those. You would have things like slavery, oppression, and so forth. But what they argued was that those oppressions, those discriminations, should not extend from to generation. What they wanted was a situation, at least according to that interpretation of the Jubilee year, where off people started off on a level playing field. Now, if black 
people, if the slave master had told the the white and black ministers to preach from the Jubilee year, how long could slavery have lasted in America? Fifty years is a maximum. But he chose servants be obedient to your master. Now, the question I raise is why is it that black people and black ministers today continue to, and this to me is where the problem is, to take that Bible as if it were some absolute text which is infallible. They can never just, they can never establish that. And allow uh, one person to take his selection and make that the norm for other people. Uh, please note what happened again. When the Irish came over, and within a couple of generations, they had set up a holiday for St. Patrick's. They had taken one of their own and lifted that up as a, as a worthy uh, hero, heroine to be... Uh, you know, to be emulated by the community. Black people didn't do that. And what I'm trying to show you, why didn't they do that? It was because, as, as Woodson says, their education, their miseducation makes it necessary. The fact that they had been taught certain kinds of principles of authority you know, my grandfather, you, you never, never, never question the Bible. Mm. That to me is where the problem is. Because there, there's, I, I, um, I did my liberation theology not focusing on the Bible. I did it from uh, a bunch of other people. Uh, but I, I'll give you another example. Uh, When we went back to, you know, uh, when uh, the white community went back to pick a hero for us to um, to look at and worship, they picked Martin Luther King. Uh, how many people ever said anything at all uh, or picked someone uh, like uh, like Nat Turner? Nat Turner was a minister. And he preached the gospel. He read the Bible such that it said the following: that every, uh, that uh, that slavery was the worst sin. It was the worst thing that anybody could do, and that it was possible because of that to take at any means necessary approach to get rid of it. I remember, for instance. Um, I was taught that the Bible does not justify counter violence. And it took me a long time to find out that there are passages that do it. All you got to do is look at the book of Esther, and that is the book that Jewish kids hear every year. Uh, at the holiday of Purim, and they were in a situation where physical genocide was being practiced on the Jews. And uh, 
they rose up. <laughs> I'm not going to go through all the stuff about Esther, but what they did, and it's right there in the book. My grandfather never pointed this out to uh, pointed this out to me. Uh, uh, Esther, Esther. <laughs> is uh, the only book in the Bible that I'm aware of where the word God is not mentioned. But the people did their business. Uh, Luther wanted to take it out. But all I'm saying is it has to do with what you go through and pick and choose. Do that which enhances your survival and well-being. And if you do that, there's nothing that the white racist, on the other hand, can do to uh, to sub to subvert you. At least you can come out with a draw. Hmm. He calls you. Uh, he calls me nigger, and I call him honky. You know, that's not the issue. The the problem is the situation where one group in the society has this overwhelming surplus of power, power to define, power to label what is right, what is good, the power to label what the cause is. Whoever has that power has the power to control economic, social, and political reality. That's the problem, the deficit of power, not the color. Do you believe there is a deficit of power between white people and non-white people currently? Oh, absolutely, okay. absolutely. I want to. I do, never uh, said. Uh, when did I say anything that was different from that? In fact, that's the the core of uh, of my whole uh, um, factor. Again, if you look at, you go back and notice what I said today. And and then look at what I said in the book and in the in the in the web thing. I have power down there. Power. I got a whole bunch of P's. Power, perspective, and so forth. But power is that uh, is that is that critical uh, a critical factor. Mm-hmm. I don't have a P for pigmentation because pigmentation does not have the power and authority of power in creating a situation of oppression and correcting it. Okay. Um, I wanted to uh, ask you, the admitted racist uh, known as Farrell Winfrey, uh, she was on uh, the show this past week, and uh, she might be listening now. Uh, She was very uh, interested in uh, hearing your views. Uh, I told her about your book, and she she said she, she was very impressed that a non-white person was doing this work because she said it's been her experience that very rarely will a non-white person uh, take the sort of stance that you have taken, uh, and particularly with regards to your book, Is God a White Racist? So she might be listening in now. She might even call in with a question or two. Uh, But she has said, and she uh, also says that she is a Christian, uh, but she has said uh, that the greatest sin that white people who practice racism have committed is making Jesus white. Uh, do you have a feeling or what is your view on the impact of a white Jesus uh, with the deficit of power between white people and non-white people? A uh, couple of points. Um, 
first, there's a fundamental error in uh, historical analysis and fact relative to what is called this uh, minimal expression of hostility, challenging God, and so forth uh, in the black community and black religion. Uh, that point of view is there. It is much, much more prominent than we allow for. I, uh, when I started doing this, the uh, black theologians and so forth uh, argued that my humanism was alien to black religion. I wrote an article. It's one of the best pieces I've done. It's called um, um, Black Religious Humanism, colon, Problems and Prospects in Black Culture. Hmm. And I went back and did a historical analysis and was able to document that this point of view was very vivid, uh, sturdy, but we did not um, have the tradition, that tradition handed down. We are very familiar, for instance, with the uh, black spirituals, the ones, you know, that talk about, you know, uh, heaven and so forth and so on. And that, that's, that's, is the primary source of our present day understanding of black religion in you know doing slavery and uh, and post slavery but uh, when you go back and look at the at, at who compiled this uh religion of black people it turns out that Literature is real clear on it. it. turns out that these were white ministers who went down and were looking within black people the kinds of theological ideas that came closest to their own. But uh, if you look in the, uh, the, I'm trying to remember the chapter, uh, um, Uh, Conti Cullen, uh, White God, Black Protest. Yeah, all of, uh, White God, Black uh, Black Protest. There's a whole bunch of people. Sterling Brown over at Howard did an article uh, years ago what, on what he called the slave seculars. The slave seculars were the protests from black people against the slave spirituals. The slave seculars made fun and parody of the belief system, you know, the pie in the sky and so forth and so on. But And that's what was left out. And when we went back and found all of this, it became quite clear that if you want to identify uh, liberation theology, 
in uh, the 19th century of liberation theology among black people, you find it in this ignored and uh, almost silent voice of black people uh, who were on this uh, humanist side. But there's much, lots of evidence that this was a very, very strong group because when they were sending out uh, missionaries, for instance, to Christianize the slaves and the Native Americans and so forth, they had to uh, brief and school the, uh, um, uh, the missionaries in how to respond and argue against these uh, uh, particular beliefs. Bishop Payne talks about black people coming to his uh, church and saying, you know, they would never set a foot inside that church, you know, as long as there was slavery and so forth, and that they couldn't, couldn't understand how in the world black people, black people, could swallow this stuff and commit themselves to uh, a, a set of beliefs and values that so clearly identified and continued their ongoing oppression. But again, if you go back, and I'm coming back to Woodson again, his explanation is their education makes it necessary. That's the cause of it, the particular belief and value that's involved there. Uh, I wanted to uh, point out also, uh, I when I first read your book, uh, that particular chapter, uh, White God, Black Protest, where you uh, take time to really highlight uh, County Cullen and uh, Mr. Carter T. Woodson, James Baldwin, long legacy of non-white people, black people, uh, who have had really strong criticisms of Christianity and the way it has been used uh, to condition and uh, abuse non-white people, and I, I uh, Nella Larson as well. Uh, I really um, appreciated that part of the book, um, and E. Franklin Frazier. And as you stated, I, I, there is a, a long legacy of uh, black people and non-white people in general uh, who have uh, voiced their disapproval uh, about Christianity and the way it's been used. Um, Benjamin Mays yeah. identified in the Negro's God that. Uh, you you could clearly find this uh, protest against uh, a God and so forth in the early 20th century. He argued that uh, he did not find it in the in the 19th century. And what our study did was to show, no, 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 it's back there as well. It is back there as well. You just need to know where to look and uh, uh, and so forth. Yes, sir. Again, this is... Uh Dr. William R. Jones, author of Is God a White Racist on the Cow's Context of White Supremacy. Uh, on your book on page 67, uh, you were, were talking about um, how you work away and correct this miseducation that victims of racism or victims of oppression have been subjected to. And you said that uh, conversion here means the fundamental reconstruction and reorientation of the individual's present world view and lifestyle. Uh, you said this uh, reduces to denigrification 
Uh, can you can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, right. Uh, remember, I started talking about this binary logic. You only got two choices. You, yes, sir. It's either going to conserve or preserve the present situation, or uh, uh, or correct it. Another way of saying that is that uh, you have two and only two kinds of religion, two and only two kinds of education, two and only two kinds of uh, of politics, uh, sports, and so forth. One's going to cop, the other's going to uh, car. And so that's what I started doing, or the enterprise I started back as a teenager. I said, it's not to get rid of religion. What we need to find out is to identify the particular, the particular religious belief and value that creates this particular response. And that's what our research is all about. We, we know how to do that now. I, the, uh, one of the concepts that has, uh, has loomed large in my uh, current and present research is, uh, the concept of absolutism. Every time I find oppression, I find absolutism. And I don't have time to go through but if this now, but if you look on the web page, there's a section on uh, pluralism, integration, and assimilation that we... Uh, claim are exhaustive in terms of how we respond to things, and um, we show how uh, absolutism is the foundational belief of, of, of assimilation. Uh, absolutism assimilation sets up one thing, one thing, as the highest, the best, and so forth. Then it takes that one thing and examines, assesses everything else. And then they come up with the following. They use that one thing to divide reality into two groups, uh, those that have that one thing and those that don't. So you got this hierarchy of superior and inferior based on whether or not you have the uh, your possession of that absolute, and then the other part of absolutism, and I'm going to explain this with respect to the missionary movement. Uh, the other part of absolutism is that you want to get rid of the difference, or the different. See the the one thing divides reality into those with it and those without it, and so oppression. And absolutism wants to get rid of those who are different because they don't have. And they do it in three ways, very precise ways. One is cloning. You take the thing that's different and transform it so that it gives up, uh, lets go of or is change, changes whatever is that's different so that it becomes a clone are identical to that one thing that uh, the absolute has started off with. The other one is um, cleansing, and I mean their ethnic cleansing, where you literally go through and erase, kill, 
murder. You're talking about holocaust, uh, exterminations, pogroms, and so forth. Uh, that's the second way. And the third one, they do it by uh, confinement. And um, uh, they set up an apartheid system, uh, 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 Jim Crow, segregation, whatever, so that the thing that is different cannot come in contact with the one good thing and contaminate it. Now, notice how this worked in the uh, 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 missionary movement. The missionary movement started off saying, how many true religions are there? And they said, one. And then they asked the question, who got it? And then they said, we got it. So then they took that one true religion, used that as a prism, an absolute prism, the sole prism, and evaluated and assessed all the other religions in the world. Anything that was different from that, they said what? It's wrong. It's inferior. And then they adopted a policy that involved the following. we got to go to wherever these false religions are, and we have to um, uh, uh, clone them, cleanse them, or confine them. Now, it interests me <laughs> that when you point this out as the motivation for the uh, um, missionary movement, and, you know, I go to Africa, I studied a lot, particularly a lot of research in South Africa, that you still find black people um, hanging on to this um, these religious doctrines of uh, of of, uh, of, of uh, this variety of Christianity, um, the we like them. I, I'm talking about black people. Certain black people in the United States do not treat themselves. Do not see themselves as co-equal. And to that degree, they don't uh, feel that... If you go to Africa, you at least find that when the people there make statues and so forth of Jesus, they turn out to be black. You go to Asia, God, God looks Asian. The one group that I have come across which... Uh, has not done this in any kind of forceful or sturdy way as in African Americans. Now you explain to me why that happens, and I'm what I'm what I'm trying to get people to look at. It is it is not it is not the uh, uh, the, the pigmentation the pigmentation that uh, that underlies it, it is the lack of a sense of co-equality, co-equal free. Uh, uh, my doctrine and understanding of humanity or human nature is uh, individuals as co-equal sinners of freedom, authority, and value. If you understand that concept, you know what parts of an oppressor 
or an apartheid or a pigmentation theory uh, are opposed to liberation. And so you identify those and um, get rid of them. That's, notice how this relates to what Howard Thurman's grandmother did. She said, look, I'm going to take myself, my situation, and regard that as co-equal to the slave master and so forth. And on that basis, I'm going to go through and look uh, through the Bible and get rid of all that stuff, that crap, that talks about my inferiority or that makes me the perpetual servant of uh, uh, some master. Now, when you do that, you literally undermine any potential that a pigmentation theology has. I want to, uh, I saw we have some callers uh, on the line. I want to make sure I give them an opportunity sure. to uh, ask questions because uh, they tend to, they don't get mad at the guests, they get mad at me if <laughs> we don't get an opportunity to uh, ask questions. So if you could please tell uh, everybody that's listening uh, your website. I have it linked uh, in the chat room. If you look at the description for the show, you will see a link for Dr. Jones' website. But if you could tell everybody listening in. I, I yeah. don't have it in front of me. If oh. uh Ask them to call in to you, or you know, or if you could uh, uh, send it out. I don't. Um, if if they send me an email, if they send me an email to um, William Jones, or if you could put this up on your website, William Jones five two four four one at Mac M A C dot com. William Jones five two four four one at Mac dot com, and I'll I'll send them a reply with the link in it, and all they have to do is download it. Okay, and again, if you're in the chat room, all you have to do is go to the top of the page and look at the description. You will see a link for Dr. Jones' website. Uh, all you have to do is click on it; it'll take you right. Uh, to his page. Uh, we do have a caller on the line. Caller, are you there? Yes. Oh, you are on there. If you could give us your name, uh, if you could let us know if you're a white person or a non-white person and ask your question or make your comment. Uh, this is um, Diva JC, fondly known as Music Woman. And uh, I am the proliferator of women in blues and jazz. And I am a woman of color. I am not white, and um, I want to go back to Dr. Jones' statement about secular lyrics, which are found in the blues, and they are the uh, terms used by blues women uh, to negate their lack of freedom. But I want to ask him a question, and that is, please explain bound on your practice as a humanitarian, no, a humanist. As a humanist, yes. Yes, yes, because I find that to be, that's the first time that I've heard someone say they're not a Christian, they're a humanist, and maybe that's what I am. Yeah, uh, 
humanism is more of a philosophical position. Uh, there are a few churches which uh, are in tune with uh, with that particular philosophy. I happen to be a Unitarian Universalist uh, minister, and I went into that uh, uh, denomination because uh, the my humanist views were not uh, uh, you know were, were acceptable. Um, it's um, it's hard to define it because it's see I, what I do is to take each religion each philosophy and identify its particular worldview position on human nature, morality, uh, ethics, um, authority, authority, and there are three parts of that that um, I use to differentiate between humanism and uh, uh, theism, which is the traditional point of view that uh, uh, most uh, Christians hold. And uh, actually, most religions throughout humankind have been on the theistic side. But there are some uh, religions that I, I put on the humanist. So Buddhism, to me, would be another. First thing. Uh, in order to have a religion, you do not need or require a belief in God. God is not a necessary condition for a religion. Uh, number two, religion is a corrective enterprise. I like to define things in terms of uh, going to the next level of generality uh, looking and seeing what that is, and then uh, show how this particular item differs from other thing in the same uh, the same genus or at the same level. It's a corrective enterprise. Uh, a corrective uh, enterprise starts off with the conclusion that something ain't right, something is wrong, and you're correcting. You know, you're trying to make things right. If you look at the concept of sin in traditional Christianity, that it, it says that we uh, we come into reality or so forth, and we are not what we ought to be. There's some problems with us, and then it um, uh, advances a practice and a set of deeds and creeds that are designed to uh, make us uh, uh, put us right. But it is a corrective enterprise. Now, education is a corrective enterprise. The presupposition of education is something you don't know. There's some skill you don't don't have. Medicine is a corrective enterprise. Uh, the purpose is to uh, keep us well or to bring us back to health. Uh, so how does religion differ from these other corrective enterprises? Religion sets up its corrective enterprise as the most important one, the one individual indispensable one that you must have in order to achieve your highest good. You may be ignorant. I mean, the, the education doesn't doesn't uh, 
necessarily uh, count as, as the best thing for you. But this is a functional definition of religion. Anything can function as a religion. Going to the house spa can be a religion if you assign it that kind of ultimacy. If you set up uh, your lifestyle and so forth such that the most important thing that you do is whatever that uh, particular uh, uh, activity is. So would racism qualify as a religion? Uh, Racism uh, uh, very easily functions as a a religion. Yes, yes. There's a book by George Kelsey who uh, uh, some years ago uh, uh, outlined this this point of view. Another way of saying it is that to me, uh, religion uh, and oppression are akin to addictions what do you have in addictions you have one thing one thing we're back to the absolutism now for which you sacrifice everything else or under which you are to which you regard everything else as uh, as inferior the the uh, addict will do will take this any means necessary approach to fulfill that functioning as a, as, a, as a religion. And again, that's why it is so difficult, so difficult to get rid of oppression. It is operating as a religion, a form of addiction. The person has reached the conclusion that their highest good requires that they get possession of whatever they are addicted to. And maintain that. Right on. Uh, Diva JC, if you can hang on the line. Uh, I wanted to make sure I got uh, the other caller in uh, before uh, the show closes out. Uh, 520, you're on the line. Did you have a question or comment? Yes, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Okay, yeah, I just want to make a few comments here. Uh, first of all, I, uh, I just disagree fundamentally with, uh, with the assertion that uh, oppression is a natural occurring thing. I, I think it's quite unnatural and uh, quite subversive. Um, Actually, if you take a look at, uh, I think, the origins, well, at least here in in America, of of Christianity, uh, really came from um, being taught basically by the racists that they were allowed to use Christianity because uh, it wasn't affecting the the business of uh, white supremacy. Basically, it was allowing the the slave to cope or have faith to cope with what it is they were enduring, which was terrorism. They were being terrorized, and they had no way out. So I think basically, um, you know, that's really the way they dealt with it. And and, uh, basically I think really what it comes down to is uh, with blacks, Christianity, is it's a habit um, of embracing faith and uh, abandoning logic. So what you basically have is confusion, and um, going on what you said, that there's a verse in the Bible, I believe it's in the New Testament, saying that the last will be first and the first will be last, and that ties in with what you were saying earlier about uh, kind of accepting the fate of the pie in the sky, the whole the whole thing. Um, and I would just say that uh, 
uh, basically that that's really the way I look at it. I also look at it as not wanting to feel bad, uh, and, and nobody wants to feel bad, so they embrace religion. And I, I think that it comes down to having an understanding of the system of white supremacy. And once you understand that, you will realize that that the people that proclaim the practice aren't Christians anyway. And you realize that these people aren't religious at all. And you begin to, to understand what's going on. I remember someone jokingly made a, a question saying, uh, why does Jesus hate black people so much? And I'd never thought of it that way. I started cracking up laughing, but I gave it some thought and really started hitting home. And uh, I didn't think, that, I didn't know that you don't, believe in the existence of white supremacy, I find that shocking, uh, according to the cover of your book. But I, I, I was really interested in listening because of the title of your book saying, is, is what I got around? I'll take the rest, I'll take uh, the rest off the line. I don't want to keep you. Yeah. Oh, thank you, sir. Uh, please understand again um, that I'm trying to give you an accurate description of oppression at several levels. One is the historical level. Another level is what I call the ontological level. That is, what are the conditions in nature and reality that predispose people to adopt this any means necessary approach to maintaining their survival and well-being. And I'm saying, it as I read it and see it, these conditions where in order to survive, I have to do it at the expense of something else. My choices, again, are if I don't eat anything at all, it's suicide. If I feed myself, feed on myself, it's still suicide. So everybody alive has rejected suicide, which is a way of saying that they see their highest good as requiring a relationship to other things as necessary for their survival and well-being and that it's okay, it's okay for us to do that. I want you to show me a person who is Christian or non-Christian who doesn't think that it's okay for them uh, to eat vegetables or whatever it is that they are being sacrificed for, uh, for their survival and well-being. Uh, that's, that's simply to me an ontological fact, and I'm saying... Until you understand that factor, you won't understand how to deal with oppression, how to counteract it. Wow. Um, I want to thank uh, caller at uh, 520 uh, for calling in. Uh, his comments about, uh, I guess, the joke that perhaps wasn't a joke, uh, why does uh, Jesus hate black people so much? Um, I know uh, in your book uh, that you talked often about how uh, you judge God uh, based on his uh, past and present. On the sum of his or her acts, right, yes. Right. 
and you said, uh, I'm quoting you here, you said the uh, principle obviously presents, excuse me, the principle obviously presents insurmountable difficulties for the black theologian, for it forces him to identify the actual events in which he sees the benevolent and liberating hand of God at work for not just man in general, but for blacks. This is not easily accomplished in light of the long history of oppression. Um, I, I just felt that that tied very closely to uh, caller at 520, uh, tied very closely to uh, his statement about uh, why does Jesus uh, hate black people, which, you know, you comment many times in your book, quoting from uh, County Cullen and various others who kind of asked this, uh, you, I think you point out in your book, there's kind of a legacy of black people asking that question and trying to come to terms with it. Right, but again, please know, I, I was doing what what we call an internal criticism mm -hmm. of the black theologians who were offering a set of religious beliefs as the sort of um, uh, glory train to liberation. And what I was trying to do was to show that they had a defective uh, set of categories that would not bring about liberation, that if they wanted to stay within the Christian tradition, they needed to uh, focus on a very specific kind of concept. And I spell that out as what, what we call a certain form of, uh, a, a certain form of theism. I won't, you know, mess around with the pre precise, precise term. But the other part of the uh, issue had to do with black theologians uh, arguing that God was on the side of the, of the oppressed. God was on the side of the oppressed. Now, if God is on the side of, a, of the oppressed, then uh, what is the event of liberation that black people can point to to identify that God is working out their liberation or their salvation. Please note, the liberation theology, all of that takes place after the resurrection. You can't use the resurrection of Jesus for liberation when the uh, uh, oppression for which that's supposed to uh, uh, correct um, hasn't, hasn't occurred yet. They, some of them go back and, and do that bit about the pie in the sky, you know, that uh, God is going to uh, bring about the liberation of black people uh, uh, in, in the future. But here again, if you operate on this principle that they operated on, this is their principle, that God is the sum of his or her acts. You tell who God is, what God is, by looking at his concrete actions. And if you can't identify a concrete action of liber uh, black liberation at this point, there's no way that they can argue that God is on their side. 
the best they can do is wait until the future, but uh, you can't uh, argue for an event that has not yet occurred to say that this is God's nature. Outstanding. We are uh, almost out of time uh, here on the Cows. Um, very interesting program. Um, again, uh, Dr. Jones, the link for his website. I saw someone did uh, get it in the chat room. Uh, if you do not, pick it up from the chat room. Uh, again, it is listed in the show description. All you have to do is click on the link, take you right there to his website. Uh, I believe his email address is listed there as well, so you can uh, contact him directly, uh, check out his book. Um, I'll give you uh, the last word uh, that you uh, would like to leave our listeners with today, Dr. Jones. Yeah, uh, I, I guess the, what I would like people to uh, recognize is that uh, all that I'm saying, uh, the web page and all of that, is part of a very specific methodology of decision-making and problem-solving, which I am willing to defend as predictive. We, the model works. It works. Again, I'm trying to say that if you understand and use this uh, this method, you can predict in advance what the economic, social, political consequences of a specific belief and value will be. You don't have to wait until to put it into effect to determine its outcome. And I am saying that to me is a most valuable piece of information and technology to make sure that we don't inadvertently put into place a set of uh, rules and principles uh, without being able to assess their consequences in advance. The method does that uh, absolutely superbly. I know uh, I've been to his website, and your website is uh, is still undergoing some construction. Oh right? yeah, yeah. No, you know that that uh, 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 I'm working on a piece that takes the National Science Foundation's request for proposals in in 2004, mm -hmm. in which they were trying to uh, solve uh, and get some breakthrough knowledge in terms of the social sciences uh, to increase its uh, predictability and also to enable it to, to cope with the uh, rising conflict and uh, among groups that they anticipated and that we argued for 20 years ago. We've been arguing uh, that, in, that uh, violence, between groups are going to increase, expand, and explode. And we explain why that is the case and identify the specific beliefs and values that, uh, that bring it about. And then show what is necessary given uh, the situation to cope with it. Uh, if, um, I'd like very much to, you know, cuss and discuss this issue with anybody who has some interest, and I, I am confident that uh, 
we're able to uh, to document every single piece of this. And uh, again, my principle is to throw out a universal and ask you to give me one concrete exception to it. And if you do that, you I have to take it off the board. We haven't had to do that. Outstanding. Again, Dr. William R. Jones, uh, professor at Florida State University and author of Is God a White Racist? Our guest today, I want to thank you for sharing your Sunday afternoon, I guess now on your side of the world, your Sunday evening yeah. uh, with us uh, to discuss. Uh, very much appreciated. I thank you uh, wholeheartedly uh, for taking this time, and uh, we'll definitely uh, be checking your website out and uh, looking for future work that you are producing uh, to help uh, work against oppression and hopefully establish a system of justice. Uh, thank you again, Dr. Jones, and we'll definitely be in touch with you soon, sir. You take care. I will thank do. You. you too the same. Enjoy the weather down there. In All right. Thank you. Good night. Uh, I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in and our callers as well for calling into the broadcast. Very much appreciated. I uh, hope there was uh, constructive information. Uh, definitely think very interesting program. Uh, again, first time I had a guest on the cows who did not think uh, that there's a system of white supremacy according to the definition that was given. Um, always creates for a very interesting uh, conversation uh, when that is the case. Um, again, Check the blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Uh, definitely be checking it out. Also, uh, next guest on the cows, for everyone who is familiar with Dr. Frances Cress-Welsing, uh, her book, The ISIS Papers, uh, she actually starts in the dedication and says, no person who classifies themselves as white living in the area of the world referred to as the United States of America, can, for that matter, in any area of the world, should presume to tell any black person or any other non-white person what racism is or is not until they have read completely Kenneth O'Reilly's Racial Matters. No black person living in the area of the world referred to as the United States of America should discourse on racism or deny the conspiratorial dimensions of the local and global system of racism until he or she has read racial matters completely. All non-white people, black, brown, red, yellow, should read and discuss the implications of the book Racial Matters, the implications for themselves as individuals and the implications for their collective should be discussed in depth. That is from Dr. Francis Cress-Welsing's dedication to the ISIS papers. Uh, the next guest on the context of white supremacy will be author of Racial Matters, Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly. Uh, we are tentatively set for Monday, April 13th at 6 p.m. Time might move. I doubt it, but he's already said uh, he is very cool with coming on the show uh, to talk about his book. For those of you who have not read his book, Racial Matters is about the misconduct of white people in the Federal Bureau of Investigations uh, who systematically mistreated black people, non-white people, 
who were working against racism, white supremacy during the so-called civil rights movement. Uh, that is uh, what re- the subject matter for racial matters, a uh, whole book about the misconduct of individuals in the FBI mistreating black people who were attempting to replace white supremacy with justice. Uh, he will be on the cows uh, again, tentative date, Monday, April 13th at 6 p.m. I uh, hope uh, all of you can uh, come in, check out the show. should be very interesting. Uh, certainly, if you're a fan of Dr. Welsing, you should have already read this book. Uh, if not, hopefully you can tune into the show and perhaps will be motivated to uh, go and check out Racial Matters. Very good book, by the way. Uh, in any event, I want to thank everybody for uh, checking out the broadcast. Uh, shout out to uh, Back of the Bus. Definitely check out the blog, nonwhitealliance.wordpress.com. Check out the uh, code.net, uh, T-H-E-C-O-D-E.net. Very constructive information on racism, white supremacy. Uh, also want to check out uh, Kima's Frisky Kitty Counter Racism Scratch Post. Uh, she has uh, one counter-racist film review up already and should be another one up within the next week. Um, lots of constructive information out there. Again, hit the blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Uh, the link for uh, our t- today's guest, Dr. Williams, uh, that link is uh, also in the description for the show today. So check those out if you have a free moment. Thank everybody for tuning in to the broadcast. Definitely look forward to uh, Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly coming up next guest on the cows. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, we'll uh, be back next time. Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade signing out. Thank you, thank you, thank you. End of the broadcast. Uh, we'll be back next time. Is racism hurting you? On issues of race, are you unable to speak, think, and act with clarity and confidence? Are you tired of laughing when nothing is funny, smiling when you are not happy, agreeing when you really disagree? Counterracism.com, you can learn specific strategies and techniques to counter the behaviors of the people who practice racism in all areas of activity. Using words correctly, following counter-racist logic, even counter-racist science projects designed to reveal what racism is, how it works, and how to counter it. The open source code writing format allows you to pick and choose from a variety of counter-racist suggestions so you can produce the code that works for you. Stop by counterracism.com today and help replace racism with justice. That's counter-racism.com.